Let's have a sincere conversation about events across the nation and topics for our own morality. Let's openly discuss in an environment of trust where perception is reality. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Perception is Reality. It could potentially be the last episode ever or just the last episode of the season. Stay tuned for that. It's your host, David, back again. And with me, I'm excited to invite my new friend, Ken Phillips, to the show, who is, I'm just going to call him a nonprofit expert. I don't know why or what that means, but he gave me a little tidbit in the uh, green room that he's going to expand upon. Maybe, maybe not. I don't even know what we're talking about. Welcome to the show, Ken. What's the topic? Oh, the I topic? don't know what the topic is. You pick the topic. I am. Are you ready for it? Should I be sitting down? Yeah. All right, a I'm sitting of, down. Good. A lot of people, actually, a lot of people should be standing up because that is the topic. Um, leaders are those people who just want to lead. Everybody can be a leader. That is my perception. Mm-hmm. Everybody can be a leader. I'm and, just writing that down so I get the note. You can keep on and, talking and, there. And, and when I saw the name of your program, that perception is reality, I loved it because if people have a perception of I am a leader, that will become their reality. It's almost that simple. Ken, why do you think people don't feel empowered to be a leader? And I ask because... I uh, have read many, many articles. There's books on this topic. Um, I don't want to say it's a really well-covered topic because I don't think it's like it's expansive as, you know, some other topics, but there's definitely some coverage out there and it does mystify me. I, I First, I want to say I do agree with you, but I just wonder why people don't feel empowered that they can be. A leader. Uh, there are a lot of reasons. I mean, history is probably the biggest one, and that is that for what thousands and thousands of years, leaders almost everywhere were physically strong, dominating characters. You led by leading in war against your whoever was near near you. So somehow we have this impression, most people do, that leaders are born. Leaders are powerful. And then the other part of it is people look and say, well, what do I think? Who do I think of when I think of a leader? Oh, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln. Oh, these were, oh my God, those are such amazing people. I never could be like that. Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Genghis Khan. And then you get into your typical organization, or I would say more typically your corporation. Uh And the boss says, hey, don't get out of place. I'm the boss. You follow me. And that is really too bad. Those three influences uh, don't help organizations progress. Yeah, I can, I can understand where that's coming from. And I guess what I'm looking at it is from my, my vantage point as being a, an air quote, people leader. I've been one for quite a while and I don't, I don't take a harsh approach and I'll explain that in a minute, but I do, um, resonate with what you're saying because back in my early career, 
I had a manager, a, air quote, leader, who was, like, I mean, on his first day, he, he was new to the group. He was the new one to the group. On his first day, he had us all there, and he said something like, when I say jump, you don't ask how high until you're in the air, and then I'll tell you how high you should get. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that that definitely plays into the hardline approach that you're, you're saying. But this is one of those things for me that when I look through life at, with my lenses, I, I typically will start meetings um, if, if I'm hosting the meeting or depending on the meeting that I'm in, because sometimes, um, and I don't think people realize this with, with title comes privilege. Uh, if it, if it, they don't realize it or they do realize it and it takes, you know, maybe, maybe they take advantage of it. But so anyway, my point is when I'm involved in a meeting or asked to be at a meeting, um, I like to preface that just because I say something doesn't make it the absolute. It's the beginning of a conversation. I expect a conversation. Mm -hmm. That's what I want. I want different opinions. I want, and I want at the end of this, I want somebody to take charge with that. I want them, him or her, or, you know, the group, whatever, to grow and succeed. And sometimes I like to set them up in a way that it's a slight stretch for them so that there's some learning involved. Um, and I feel like the task that they've come up with is too easy. I might add a little bit to it just to give it a little stretch, um, not to be mean, but like I want, I want there to be a learning to come out of it in a, in a good way. Um, so I, you know, hope that. Well, I hope you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. I and I agree with you. That's very much my personality. But one one of the things that I've realized is that there are a lot of myths about leadership, and one of them is that leaders are born. Yeah. And I look at myself and I don't have any of those great characteristics of a Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or, or people like that. I mean, I'm, I'm just like a great, a regular person. Yeah, well, I'm, so I'm so were they, I, and I mean this not to take away from them because I too, do truly believe that they were great human beings, but this is, this, this is also something that, that I see from my lens is they put their pants on the same way you do. They're people, they did accomplish quite a bit. But that doesn't make you any less of a human being. Oh, I agree with you completely. Uh, even someone like uh, Winston Churchill, who, you know, some people say was the savior of Western civilization against the fascists. Mm. He failed in his early career. Yeah. He was a failure. He but did. things changed and he changed. Um, so my experience is that leaders learn leadership. People learn leadership from experience eyes wide open walking through life there's so many times when you say oh that's what leadership is an example i was a lifeguard when i was a teenager and i didn't know it then but more recently i looked back and i said oh who was the most important person out there me as a lifeguard leader saving potentially kids lives or my boss who was back in the office doing accounting or looking at how to get more members or whatever it was. And mm -hmm. I wrote, oh my God, my leadership is more important than his. Very simple. Oh, exactly. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I just wish that more people, more people would um, accept that. I mean, I do want to say that what you mentioned earlier is true. I'm sure that there's 
um, superiors in, in a workplace environment, some sort of chain of command kind of thing where they would discourage that. But I think in the vast majority of companies that I've worked at or been working with, that's not the case that I've seen. They're open to people taking initiative and leading a project. I mean, you may not end up leading people, but you can lead a project. You can lead something and you can learn from that. And like you said, that, that learning just gives you more skills and then you just grow from there. Yeah. Again, the second myth I think about leadership is mm -hmm. that the myth is that people at the top are the leaders. Well, yeah, sometimes or maybe most of the times, yes. But the reality, the real truth is that people, organizations need leaders at every level of the organization. And, you know, partly the task force you're talking about. But people who are, for example, in contact with external stakeholders, mm -hmm. uh, customers in nonprofit cases, donors, officials, they know something instantly and far before the executive director or the ceo knows what's going on because that person on the front line is in touch with the real reality of that corporation or organization and i'm convinced that they people on the front line just like in an army know more what's going on than the people back in the office and they're the ones who know what the issues are before the researchers even know what questions to ask. Oh, absolutely. There was a company, maybe you know, I, I can't remember the reference, and I do this a lot, because I read a lot, and then I forget, and then I say, I'll go back and look for the reference, but I'm a human, and I never go back and look for the reference, so maybe, Ken, you can bail me out here. But there was a company that, uh, I want to say it was like a retail-type environment, and they had a very large customer service department. And the return policy was incredibly cumbersome and it caused a severe dislike by customers. That company changed their policy and allowed, the they empowered the customer service reps to make the decision right there on the phone. And there were, no, maybe it was Zappos, no, I don't know. You, hopefully you, this is resonating with you, but, and, and that changed the whole per diem for the company and their success rate is just off the charts now. Right, right. One small, thing so i want to get into more myths that you have but why do you think that leaders some of those some of those air quote leaders or top chain management people would discourage somebody from who's down the line from taking on a more empowered or leadership role why i feel like it's fear-based but i'm gonna hopefully you'll have an answer for me <laughs> i do agree that it's fear-based uh, I mean, look at the turnover at the corporate senior person level in corporations today. I don't know what the figure is. Is four years or five years? Yeah. You're either up or you're out. Yeah. And and the fear is the person you're maybe supporting to really be a great leader working with you, oh, might be the one who kills you, takes your job. So I think fear is is strong. Uh, and and I, I see a real difference between the corporate world and the nonprofit world. And in the corporate world, and this is going to be an exaggeration and overstatement, but people are rewarded with money when they do a good job. Uh -huh. And they're rewarded with, you know, goodbye, you're gone when they don't do a good job. In, in the nonprofit world, there are two rewards. 
one is certainly money, but it, that's not actually the major one. The major one is the vision of the organization. People go to work for nonprofits and generally take a lower salary because they are committed to the vision of helping children in you know poor countries, of dealing with you know supporting refugees, of helping cure cancer, whatever the issue might be. They're motivated that. They're excited by it. And money is important, but actually you'll never have enough of it. So it's never a satisfying issue. <laughs> That's true. And Motivated that, uh, by mission and vision and mission gets people to work really well. And, and because of that, leaders in nonprofits are more open, in my opinion, in my experience over what, 55 years I've been in the field. They're more open to ideas, to strategies, to changes coming from people throughout the organization, from leadership at all levels, because it's done for the good of the vision and the good of the mission. It's gonna help the world. So leaders and nonprofits are, you know, it's a much more participatory process. And a lot of people actually complain about nonprofits, or in this country, we call them charities. Um, Talk, 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 talk. Yeah, talking is important. It's a way of getting people involved and helping them move forward. Talking is important. Words matter. Um, do you think people are disenfranchised with charities or, or nonprofit organizations? And, and if so, why? Are, are they disenfranchised? Yeah, are they up? Because you just mentioned that people don't necessarily like them, or they have a negative perception. Uh, maybe I misunderstood. Oh, okay. What you're okay, the public has a critic uh, has a, often has a negative attitude, um, and I have uh, I have real you know issues with that mm -hmm. because usually they're critical of high salaries. I mean, I was sitting at a really nice restaurant once, talking with neighbors. And, and they started talking about a very well-known organization in the United States that was very large. And they were, the first thing they said, oh, they're not, you know, they didn't talk about how they're helping defeat starvation or meeting the needs of people. They said, oh, the CEO is earning blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't that much. So people are extra critical. And then they talk about, well, there was a problem with this group or that group, sure. Nonprofits are not exempt from dis difficulties, but the difficulties are nothing compared to what happens when a corporation does something bad. I mean, look at the scandals going on around the world in oh, finance and housing and, you know, so many areas. Look at the scandals going on around the world in governments. That's very true. They screw I, uh, up in a big way. I was fortunate enough to be on... Uh, the board of a local Rochester charity. Well, it's a national charity, but um, the local chapter of the, the Rochester chapter for the Dream Factory. Mm -hmm. And we did not have, we had, I think it was 96 cents of every dollar went towards the dreams. We only had like a 4% administrative rate and that was to like cover the group insurance, uh -huh. like the mailbox and a voicemail account or a phone account or something. It was very minimal. Because our budget was was pretty small, we shoestringed shoestringed quite a bit, but people were very they were never really negative with us because of our budget. Because one of us board members would always pitch in the extra money out of our own pockets, so we could still maintain that ratio. But 
people were very, they would look at the budget because we were very open with it with uh, under a magnifying glass. They, they, they were, I will, I guess I'm echoing what you're saying is that people are highly critical. And I think I remember the article or whatever went with that. I, I think I know the organization or at least one of the, there's three that people like to point out where the CEOs um, make, you know, high salaries, uh, but comparatively speaking, they, they, they really don't. Right. Right. And then how much, I mean, my experience is that most of those leaders in those in nonprofit organizations are some of the biggest donors to the organization, but I yeah. could be wrong there. I know that's very often true. Yeah. I mean, an another difference between corporate and nonprofit worlds, I think, there's a leadership myth that women do not make good leaders. Oh, that's one of my favorite myths. I yeah. I don't and like to say the word hate very often, Ken, but I sincerely <laughs> hate when people say that. Um, oh, yeah. I really do. Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Please carry okay. on. I mean, a recent study in Boston pointed out the very large percentage of the major corporations that don't have a single woman on their board or a single woman in a senior level. So a digression. I was working with the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts in Poland a, a year ago, and four groups, two groups of girls, two groups of boys, and they were, you know, late teens, early 20s. They were the leaders, and they agreed after a couple of days of, of work and discussion that they wanted to work on the goal of getting more parents involved. So that's what they said. That's our project. So at the end of the, the day, I said, okay, we have an hour, two hours more, uh, get in your group and write up your plan of action. What is it you're going to do to increase the number of parents involved in your scout group? Okay, you know, mm -hmm. plans, activities, responsibility, all that. About 30, 40, 40 minutes later, actually both girl groups had finished. They had done a really good job. They had a very explicit, measurable objective that was challenging but achievable. They had a bunch of activities with responsibilities and timelines. That's a really good plan. One of the boy groups was working, struggling, and they were making progress. They were gonna finish maybe on time. For the fourth group, one of the, one of the guys called me over and said, Ken, we need your help. What do you do when you have six alpha males in a group who cannot even agree on what to disagree on? They couldn't do anything. And without thinking, I said, get a girl facilitator or get a girl leader. And it works. I've seen mm -hmm. it in nonprofit associations all over the world. Groups of male and female working together are more productive. I read somewhere that Google invested, you know, millions or hundreds of millions in determining what makes a productive group. And one of them was diversity of male and female. It's obvious. Absolutely. In, in the, and this is where I come to my key point. In the nonprofit world, women play major roles. Women are very often in the majority or certainly equality on the board of directors. Women are very often, and I would say half the time just about, in senior positions of organizations. Why? Because they're a good leader. 
and they care about the vision of the organization. So, you know, that myth that women don't make good leaders is truly a myth because give them a chance, support them. I mean, I've heard from so many women, my wife included, that she's been in meetings where a woman says something and it's ignored. And then five minutes later, a guy says the same thing. And the other guy say, Joe, what a great idea. Now, that's something that needs to be corrected. Oh, I agree. I don't, I don't, <clears throat> I take steps to actively not participate in events where somebody takes credit for somebody else's suggestion. I've seen it and I will, I will, even if I'm not the most senior person in the room, I will halt the meeting and try to write that wrong as best I can. Uh, but yeah. I wonder why, well, maybe it's, I, I'm answering my own question before I answer it. Is this because experience <laughs> is that it's just nobody, those, I say this on the podcast a lot, those in power just want to maintain power. Um, so there's no benefit to them by stopping and, and saying, acknowledging that somebody else said the same suggestion that happened to be female. But I, I, as a general, uh, Ken, as a society, how do we move past something like this? Because it's, it's a huge, this is a pet peeve for me. In so much as I work in a very male-dominated industry, telecom and IT. Oh. Our office has, I want to say 90, I'm just going to use round numbers because I don't like to do math in public. So let's say we have 90 employees, nine of which are, are female. Um, <laughs> most of the females actually work for me. So, I mean, I, I, so there are some scattered throughout and we're hiring more and more, but thank God. Um, but I am the one who got all of the women in the office together and convinced them to go out to lunch together and start forming like a network because I felt it was important for some of the um, younger people or less tenured people to get mentored by some of the women leaders that, that are in, because we have some, I'm very, we're fortunate enough to have some great women leaders in, in our office. And I wanted to make sure that all happened, but I didn't, I, why was I the one that did that? I, I don't know, yeah. I'm glad I did. They're all glad I did, don't get me, and I even get invited to those events, but I'm like, no, really, you just, it's okay, you guys can go. Um, when they go to my favorite Mediterranean restaurant, I may not be able to say no, Ken, though. I, I might <laughs> but I mean, why did it take me to do that? Yeah. Because of the tradition and the history. Oh. I mean, male domination has been a curse of civilization since it began. And maybe initially there were reasons because of the need for high rates of pregnancy, but mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. in the world today. Um, I mean, two things that really need to be done is everyone, men and women, need to mentor women more. Consciously work on it. The second thing, and, and this is surprising because there, there was that great book that came out, what, five years ago about lean in. Yeah. And then the attitude changed because the lean in concept is saying, hey, girls, it's your failure. You're not leaning in. No. The failure is, put it bluntly, the guys who don't let them lean in, who don't open the space. I mean, this is, is another, is a softer version, but it's just as serious. Mm -hmm. It's just as bad for society as what we're reading about in the Me Too movement and the Harvey Weinstein's and 
you know, all these, these very powerful men who have done just horrible things. Well, maybe most men do it in a version of not paying attention and not respecting. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because there's a good example that I talked about in a different episode is that specifically with, with people who abuse power and, and Harvey came up because it's, it's relevant. And um, one actress came out and she spoke about she was, I, I don't remember if she was uh, a victim of Harvey or not, but she had a meeting with David Schwimmer. I don't know if you know who he is, but he was one of the, he was Ross on Friends. I don't know if you ever mm-hmm. watched Friends. Yeah. Well, he, he does a lot of directing and producing, and he's got a lot of credentials beyond friends. You know, he, he grew beyond that. And he had a meeting with an actor, this actress, and they had a meeting in the restaurant at the, in the lobby of his hotel. And they wanted to continue. She was going to get the lead role or whatever she was applying for or whatever. And he wanted to continue the conversation but the, they clearly had to get their table turned over. And he, was, and, he, and he looked at her and he said, we can continue this upstairs, but I would recommend, you know, we can call somebody. Do you want to call somebody? Do you want me to get my manager? He was very clear with her that he wanted to set a boundary that, you know, if she wasn't comfortable with going alone, that they should get somebody. And I'm doing a horrible job explaining her feelings, but the, the tone was David made a conscious decision and he understood the predicament that he would or could be putting this poor person in that she might feel like she had to finish getting this role. And he was very clear, no, this is, that's not what this is. And she goes on to talk about what a great leader he was, what a great director he was, and how he really had a big role to play in her future career taking or her current career level it is now, um, based on the whole Me Too thing. Um, again, I don't remember the actress or the source. I could look mm-hmm. it up if somebody emails me. I guess I could, but I mean, it's all Googleable. That's why. That's why we have Google. <laughs> look it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I forget why I brought that up. I had a point. I hope it mirrored what you were trying to say. Um, if let, not, let you, go ahead. Let me give you another another story. Again, when I was young, and it's ha- it's really interesting because you know. And now that I'm very definitely a senior citizen, I have my 80th birthday coming up next week. Um, I have I a back. birthday coming up next week too. What day? Oh, cool. On the uh, March 5, March 5. Oh, well, happy pre-birthday. Oh, good. Um, but I, I look back and say, oh my God, that's, that was really important that happened to me. And so I was out on an island with, I don't know, 20 other people fishing. Mm-hmm. fishing from the shore on, on Nantucket on Great Point. And there are a lot of cars there because you drive out a couple miles. But it's a riptide. And all of a sudden, we all saw a kid who was swimming and getting pushed out by the riptide. And he was, you know, arms flailing. And everybody looked around, what to do, what to do? And people were screaming, you know, where's a phone? Well, we didn't have phones then. Where's, where's a, you know, where's a lifeguard? There were no lifeguards. Where's a whatever? And nobody knew what to do there. People were casting their fishing lines out to help them. And I, I was wondering what happens if they really hook them. Right. But so what I did, I didn't look at the kid because I knew I, I was a good swimmer, but I knew I couldn't save him because of the riptide. I went around and looked in all the cars and found the obvious, obvious solution, an inner tube. I, I don't know whose car it is. I, I opened it, I grabbed the tube and I jumped in, swam out, got the kid, 
moved out of the riptide and came back in. Um, I just did the obvious, which is see a problem and step up and do something about it. Um, and that's what's led me now in, in the book that I've just written and will be coming out uh, this month or really April 7, uh, six simple steps to lead. And this is why my theme is on this program is everybody can be a leader. And there's six simple steps that everybody, literally everybody can do. And they're based in all of my years of experience. The first is to network. Sounds simple. Everybody can network. You know, you do it in your personal relationships, you do it in family, you do it in neighborhood. So it's, it's a natural human trait. So why do you need a network to be a leader? Well, you need to network so you have a group of people you can connect with to help you do something. Okay, that's number one. Number two is eyes wide open so you can see something that needs to be done. You know, the kid who's getting swept out or something going wrong in your organization or a customer who makes a complaint that no one's paying attention to or, you know, whatever it might be. Seeing is something that needs to be done. Okay, that's good. Seizing an opportunity. Seizing an opportunity when you see that. Because seeing is one thing, seeing it, seizing it is the next. And then the critical one, really, is to step up. And that could be in a big way or a little way. Um, next two are always persist, never give up, because you know, you'll have problem. And then the last one is to run meetings or run discussions well. And that sounds sort of silly, but it's not. Because when you run a meeting well, as you were talking about earlier, listening to people, hearing what they're saying, taking that into your consideration and coming out with a conclusion, ah, you're, you're building your network, you're responding to what you saw needs to be done, you're taking an opportunity, and you're stepping up to get it done. So simple, simple steps that everybody can do. And I was amazed when I recently saw some videos of how people do step up in emergencies. You know, the video of the, the child falling into the subway track. What happens? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, somebody immediately jumps down, picks up the kid and hands him up, and other people run over to pull up the guy who jumped into the track. Or another video I saw of an older, older woman going across the street with a baby carriage, probably her granddaughter, and a car's coming. What happens? People run out to help her go more quickly. Other people run out to wave at the car to stop. People do stop. People do step up. They just need, you know, to realize I can do it. It is simple to step up, to lead. It doesn't have to be for big things. You don't have to save the world in one minute. But right. You, you take, don't. Take an action. Step up. That's it. Reach out. I, I, th those six steps are there are awesome. Um, where can we find your book? Is it on uh, Amazon? Is it on uh, Amazon? It will be. It okay. will be. Um, it's based on you know everything I've learned in well, twenty five years of being a fundraiser, say at Save the Children, of being the executive director at an organization called Foster Parents Plan, doing um, head of organizational development at the International Federation in Geneva for the Red Cross, and then another. 25 years uh, being a teacher, a trainer, a consultant 
with NGOs all over the world. I mean, probably 20 countries, 30 countries that I've, I've worked in. And so it's very simple and it builds completely on the nonprofit vision. The title is Make a Better World. And the subhead is, it's a practical guide to leadership for fundraising steps. Raise more money and have greater impact through strategy, teamwork, and stepping up. So the first half of it is really what we've been talking about, that if you have the perception of yourself as a, as a leader, you will have that as a reality. So that's the first half of the book. The second half is what I have learned about fundraising. And the first critical principle there is everybody's responsible for fundraising. I've talked to so many executive directors who say, oh yeah, we hired a fundraiser and she didn't work out. Usually it was he saying that about her. Mm -hmm. And we fired her after the first year. And I would always say, well, what did you do to help her? And he would typically say, nothing, that's her job. And I say, well, I'll tell you whose job it really is. It's yours and everybody else in the organization because you cannot raise money for an organization where everybody is not attending to making it an attractive organization to donors. That's true. That's very true. Working, working with CARE in uh, Thailand, I'm there doing a program with, I don't know, 50 of their field workers, the people who are actually working in communities for community development, housing, water, agriculture. And at the end of the program, one of the, the guys from Thailand stands up and says, you know, I never thought about it, but I've got it. Fundraising, it's my job. And by that, he meant two things. It's part of his responsibility to do what he can do to make it an attractive organization for more donors, but it's also his salary is what pays his job. Fundraising is my job. And when people see that, you know, you can't raise money unless everybody's involved. That's very true. And it is with an, or with, with a nonprofit, it's definitely more, I don't want to say more important, but you all, anybody who volunteers with that organization represents that organization. So I agree that everybody is a, you know, everybody's job is, is fundraising. And it's, you know, you, people who talk to customers, they're the representative of the customer. And, and more often than not, when you talk to somebody who's volunteering for an organization or they work for an organization that's a nonprofit, they're proud to do that. That, that helps fulfill something in them and they want to talk about it. And, and I like when I see that passion and I like when I see somebody who um, isn't timid about it when, you know, when it's brought up, you know, I'm not saying I want them to uh, force it down my throat every moment, but I'm saying that, you know, once you start that conversation, you could see there the sparkle in their eyes. So I, it's definitely everybody's job. I mean, there may be one person who's air quote in charge of fundraising and, and that position might be to try to pursue grants or, you know, funding outside, something like that. But Fundraising is definitely everybody's job. So I'm glad you were able to get that message through. Did that person that you said that to, did that, did, did that person specifically receive that message okay? Or did they just kind of roll their eyes and not acknowledge that? No, everybody I talk to, and I've, I've talked to hundreds of organizations and thousands of, of nonprofit leaders in, I don't know, 40, 50 countries. Mm -hmm. 
they say, yeah, that's true. That's true. I understand. Because if your organization is not doing a good job of getting results, it is not doing a good job of financial accounting, if it's not doing a good job of board involvement and activity, if it's not doing a good job in any area, why would a donor say, oh, I want to give you money? When, when you go, any of us go into a store to buy a shirt, we touch it, we feel it, we decide for ourselves, do we want to buy this product for ourselves, for me? But with a, a charity, you are saying, oh, am I going to give my money to that organization to do something? It's a diff very different business model. You know, the business model in business is you know, mostly selfish. You're a consumer. You're buying something for yourself mm -hmm. or your family. In the business model of a charity, you are buying something to make it a better world. Hopefully, and, that's the intent, right? Oh, yeah, that's the intent. And I would say overwhelmingly, you know, are taxes better used than contributions? Well, that's a long debate. That's another program. But I think contributions are better used. You know, one, another really interesting thing about nonprofits is that there is almost always a separation of governance and management. So the chairman, chairperson of the board is different from the executive director. Mm -hmm. So there's yeah. a layer of accountability, two different levels of, con of, of accountability, sort of like, you know, supposedly our government has three. Well, nonprofits have two, and donors would be the third level. In a business, generally, the CEO is the chairman of the board. Overwhelming. In most cases, yeah. In one person. And look what happens at Boeing when that guy doesn't do a good job. Look at what happens at Wells Fargo. Or at Enron. Yeah. But um, no checks and balances. There are less checks and balances. So did you tell us um, when your book was going to drop? Uh, I don't remember. Okay. I didn't write that down. So I, I'm assuming that maybe I, you I, did. It will actually will have the launch on April 7 when I'll do it at Suffolk University in Boston, surrounded by students. And one of my hopes, and I particularly want to reach out to the youth world, and students, because ISAC, the organization I've been involved with, has activity in 5,000 university campuses. Because my understanding is that any of them, any students, maybe any, anyone who tune in and link in can get a free Kindle book that day. And I'm writing this, frankly, not to make a bunch of money, but frankly, to help people know what to do to be stepping up as leaders and what they need to know about fundraising. These are the two critical ingredients for nonprofits. Um, yeah, I would easy, based, yeah, based yeah, on my it, I would agree. It's easy to hire a finance director. I, you know, I, I think they're very important, but it's, they're, they're available. It's easy to hire um, HR people, easier to hire a bunch of people in the program area. The challenge is enabling them all to be leaders to make the organization better and knowing what you need to do about fundraising, you know, why are organizations not raising more money? Yeah, I did a major study for a foundation in Japan that identified four reasons. Uh, one was they weren't really establishing their trust. Well, that's a, a job everybody has to do. 
everybody has to be trustworthy and honest. That's a core program concept. The second challenge is they weren't documenting their results very well or achieving them well enough. And so that's the second one is nonprofits need to demonstrate that in their business model, the product is really good for the people or the, the community or the world that they're working for. The third is you do have to give value to donors. It's not a financial value, but it's something else. What do those donors want? And I, I come down to everybody has a dream. Well, our job is to find out what that dream is and help them achieve it. Because you, know, you have a dream, you want to help kids. Wow. And then the fourth and, and equally important is you have to have the right effort, enough effort going into the fundraising program. It doesn't happen just by hiring one person and then walking away. Help happens when the organization really is committed to it. Yeah, it's not a Ronco product. You can't set it and forget it. Um, and exactly. for those of you listening that are outside the country, uh, outside the United States, or if you're of a certain age demographic, let's just say a little bit south of where Ken and I sit, Google Ronco. There's a bunch of videos of Ron, um, the owner of the company, and you'll understand where the set it and forget it slogan comes to. Sorry about the segue, Ken. I just had to explain. Sometimes I have to explain uh, where my old references come from. Right, right. But I am um, actually putting my website together right this week. It should be up and running next week, maybe by the time this is uh, public. Mm -hmm. I also am on Facebook and LinkedIn, and both of them are NGO Futures, because that is the name of my organizations that I've had now for 25 years. NGO Futures is one word, NGO Futures. Without, without me, without knowing what to do about leadership and fundraising, your future as an organization is not so good. So facebook.com slash NGO Futures is where people can find me. Or LinkedIn com da slash in slash NGO futures. And uh, I do believe from the reactions I've gotten from, I don't know, about 50 people who've guided me in, in, in the editing, this, this could, is, is a significant approach, significant yeah. approach to helping people and their organizations. Yeah, from what you've shared with me, I can definitely agree with it. Um, I haven't read it yet. But I can definitely say that uh, the, the points you've mentioned, definitely every single word that you've said has resonated with me. I've lived some of that, uh, most of it. Uh, but I've been fortunate to be part of very good organizations. Um, and if I've been part of an organization that I, I, I will leave an organization for if, if I don't feel like they are um, at my standards. And I don't mean that to sound. Mm -hmm. Hockey can like I well, you know, so it's David's standards. No, but I mean I have a certain set of standards, uh, principles by which I operate. And if there's not a cultural alignment, it's just going to cause friction, is what I mean. And I don't want that friction in my life, or and I don't want to cause the organization friction either. So we'll look forward to that. Um, I, NGO futures, and I'll make sure that I put the link when I post the episode. Oh, great. Let me tell, share one more story, which was Absolutely. told to me, oh, many, many years years ago in 
in the Cherokee Nation in North Carolina by a, a friend who was Cherokee. And um, he said, he told me the story and the grandfather and the granddaughter are sitting together and the granddaughter says, Grandpa, you told me that inside of everybody, there's a good wolf and a bad wolf. What did you mean? And he thinks, he remembers, he lets the thought go through him. And then after a, a little bit, he says, uh, yes, everybody, everybody in the world has a good wolf and a bad wolf. And the granddaughter's, you know, shaking her head. What, what does this mean? And you know, she's thinking and wrestling with this thought of, you know, a wolf inside of you, much less two. She says, but grandpa, what do they do? What do these wolves do? And he says, granddaughter, they fight. They fight inside of you. And she thinks, and now she's really confused. And, and she says, Grandpa, which one wins? And he says, the one you feed. The wolf you feed is the one who wins. And what he meant, of course, is you decide whether you feed the good wolf or the bad wolf. And when you feed the good one, you know, this is good for the world. And what I believe in when I'm talking to people working in charities or in NGOs, I say, and you know what? Every time you, with the, as a good organization person, are working with a donor, you're feeding that donor's good wolf. You're helping them be a better person uh -huh. by helping the world be a better world. Absolutely. And that's what my book, Make a Better World, is all about, is feeding the good wolf around the world. And, you know, look at our, I don't want to use the words I'm thinking, but look at our societies in so many countries today. It's, it's worrisome. It's worrisome. It is. It is very worrisome, um, and we don't need. That's a whole different topic that I will. <laughs> we could go yeah. on forever on that one in and of itself. Um, but uh, yeah. another point on leadership: I was doing essentially a course on fundraising and leadership with NGO people, young, you know, they're in their twenties and thirties, in Kiev in the Ukraine, and it was about six months after their Maidan revolution where the people rose up and forced a very corrupt um, president to flee and they won. And I'm there and I'm really impressed as I'm talking about leadership characteristics and qualities and everything with these 20 kids. And um, they're like behaving, you know, 10 times older than they should were. And on the way back, uh, after the program, I was talking to a longtime friend uh, from the country, and I said, Svetlana, I was really impressed with, with how developed their leadership was. They really got it. And she, she turned to me and said, Ken, don't you know, you're so dumb sometimes. She said that to me. These people, excuse me, I say it, and it really goes deep into me. She said, these people saw their friends 
shot and killed by their government. <laughs> they had to grow up. They had to become leaders really fast. And that was like one of the big lessons, biggest lessons to me that leadership is something you learn, not sitting in a course, not listening to Ken, but actually living your life and seeing what a difference you can make by seeing problems and deciding to do something about them. That's what these kids in, in uh, Ukraine have done. Yeah, they have. Um, I agree. And I'm oh, wow. glad you were able to go there and make a difference even more and solidify what they already knew. Ken, how did you get your start? I mean, you, you, you um, outed your age, which, you know, we all are <laughs> going to be wishing you a happy birthday on the 5th. Um, <laughs> So uh, again, pre-happy birthday, and this will actually this will air on your birthday. How about oh that? God. So it's not just my birthday; it's my 80th birthday. Right, it is that, which is quite an accomplishment in and of That's itself. But pretty I, remarkable. I, I want to know, like, take us back to to young Ken starting out in the world. Oh like, God. how did how did you get on this path? I don't know. I've thought about that a lot. But two simple uh, sentences. Because my dad, who was a business person, always said to me, Kenny, whatever you do, do it well. That was the efficiency and effectiveness person. Uh -huh. And my mom, who was much more spiritual, said, Kenny, whatever you do, do something good. Now, if you could see me, I'm shrugging my shoulders. What else could I do hmm. except go into the nonprofit world? And, um, you know, then I got involved with a student organization, and that was a tremendous learning experience, being responsible for, you know, th thousands of exchanges internationally, the two years I was a national president, being responsible for growing the number of universities involved from 30 to 70. You know, I learned the, the benefit of strategy and motivation. And at the end of that, I had two job offers. One was with a bank. And if I had joined the bank, um, I would have been, you know, really rich because I'm, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. But I joined the Institute of International Education, and this was in 1966. And the first project I did was essentially a reverse Peace Corps of getting money from the Ford Foundation to enable international students who are already in the United States from Latin America, from Africa, from other countries, work in summer poverty projects in Appalachia, in um, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, and in New York City. And there were 50 of them who went and they did, they outperformed their American counterparts because they had, you know, fluent Spanish, they had their cultural history, they you know, they had not gone through slavery themselves in terms of the American curse. Mm -hmm. So they had a really added value as with a perspective and a motivating perspective for the community people they were working with that summer. So, you know, that was solidifying it. And my boss was a woman. What more do I have to say? <laughs> <laughs> not much, but I mean, definitely if you have those two influences, do it well and do it good. Uh, you know, you you did find a way to do it well and good together. So kudos to you for yeah. that. 
Yeah. So I, I feel like I've gotten to know you over the past hour and I feel like I know the answer to this, but I, I definitely want you to say it out loud is, do you ever look back and regret not taking the bank job? Oh, no, never. I didn't think so. And, and every and time, I, every time I look at my kids or my grandkids, I know what they feel for me is because of what I've done. Oh, absolutely. And I, 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 I'm, I'm going to not ask the question. I'm just going to state what I am perceiving to be fact is that I'm perceiving that you took the more fulfilling path and your life was full of many great things as a result of your choice um, to pursue this road that you're on versus yeah. the um, I want to, what do I say? Monet, monetary road, the materialistic yeah. road. Let's just call it the materialistic road yeah. of, of corporate America and using a bank as an example. Um, I was going to ask that in a question, but I just am stating that that's my perception. And, you know, of, of just from talking with you, being privileged enough to talk to you for the past hour, that's just my, my perception of how that has worked out for you. Um, people shy away, if you don't mind. Uh, you can expand on that if you want, but I'm just going to ask you a, a different question. Is people shy away from from nonprofit organizations and my, and I might've even been one of those, but I do, I have volunteered quite a bit. And, and when I moved from, when I moved three years ago, I had to step down from that charity and I haven't picked up a new one yet, but I have a few on my radar, uh, but I had to get settled in into my new, new place and get the kids settled in college and everything. Um, so life happens, but I'm ready to, to delve into the nonprofit volunteering world again. Um, but I feel like my dream job is like, can I, I hope to retire early where I can just volunteer at whatever level of the charity I, the, the nonprofit organization I choose to work with will have me in whatever role or capacity. And I can just volunteer my time freely. Um, I don't, um, knock on wood, hopefully that'll be the case, but, um, I'm waiting until that point, but I think there's people out there that would do very well in a nonprofit organization, but they're afraid of the salary. Uh, they won't be able to make ends meet. Like, how do you encourage that? How do you encourage that? Because I don't want uh, a, a brain drain on nonprofits because I feel like they are highly important. Yeah, uh, there, there are really a couple of different answers to that. I mean, one is you actually don't have to be employed by a nonprofit to make a difference in the world. It's the volunteer approach. And what's interesting is if, when you include the value of volunteering time, and, and the government and the Urban Institute are now putting a number on that, the nonprofit community is larger than many well-known industries. For example, I think it's larger than the automobile industry in this country. So it's not a small community. And so volunteering is the first answer to your question. The second is, yeah, smaller nonprofits are really cash poor. Mm -hmm. The bigger ones, you know, the ones you read about more often, the ones you see advertisements more often, the salaries are not 
terrible. They're not, they're not affluent, but they're certainly sufficient in the world today. They are. I mean, I, I've lived on them and I've, I'm comfortable enough. Um, so you don't have to be poor to work. You are rich, enriched. And then just a, a fourth answer is um, a big bank did a survey of their very wealthy uh, investors. And they said, basically, are you happy? And the answers were mixed, not overwhelmingly happy. And then the, answer, the next question was, what would make you more happy? What would make you happier? And the largest answer was more money. And this is from rich people. And you ask me what would make me happier? You know, <laughs> ask anybody working in a nonprofit, what would make you happier? You know, more, more work, more help, more impact, more of what we do. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah. That's, that's beautiful. And I think most, most people in nonprofits would say that. You know, it takes money, it takes effort, but that's their passion for what they do. And that's why they work actually for less money. One of my bosses at one point, he was chairman of the board and he was always said, Ken, don't talk to me about money because money's not a motivator. It's psychic pay that's important. Well, it, it's true. Psychic pay is very important. Very important. Uh, I would, I, I agree. I, it, it is in one way, you know, talking about the dream factory when we would be out in public or, whatever we would always tell people that uh you know we value their time more than we value their money we never turned down a donation but we mm -hmm. always strongly said we'd much rather have you your time with us than your money yeah yeah uh that was much much more valuable to us and we were a small organization and you know we definitely were like i said cash poor shoestring like you said cash poor and i said shoestringed and you know a lot of us like i said on the board like it, you know, the average to fulfill a dream for, for a family, um, a, a child who is critically chronically ill is around $5,000. And, you know, sometimes we didn't have the money and the board picked up the tab and sometimes, sometimes we did. But the volunteers that made it all happen was, you know, more important. And our chapter was 100% volunteer. We very, very much prided ourselves on that. And everybody who volunteered with us. Yeah. That's great. Just so fulfilled and and, re and rewarding. It was um, you know truly great time, and I have to uh, like I said I I have the itch where I need to um, find another organization to work with now that I'm feeling settled. I don't like to extend. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like to overextend myself, and I wasn't feeling settled. Now that I'm settled uh, in both my new position and and the place that we're at and the family settled and I feel like everything's settled. I can start to look outward again because I definitely, I will warn people. This is my public service announcement to, to everybody. When you get involved with a nonprofit organization and then for whatever reason life happens, it stops. You will long to work for another one or work with another one because you will miss the, the good people you're working with, the people that you're helping, but you know, you feel fulfilled and whole. I mean, can mm -hmm. help me out here if I'm not, I guess I don't know that I'm using the right words to describe the benefit of, of that. I, you know, okay. <laughs> um, 
part of my book includes a section on a, a hierarchy of human value. And it, to me, it's a very simple progression. At the, and it's based on the thinking of Maslow. Um, but at the lower level, it's the obvious, is caring for yourself. I mean, we have to, everybody has to survive. So caring for yourself. You can't pour from an empty cup. Yeah, the second level is caring for your family and for other people who are close to you. It could be other family, it could be neighbors, whomever, but people who are close to you. And that's important, really important. The third level is where we get into the real issue of caring for the world because it's caring for other people in need and for our planet. So that's everything. And then even higher is helping those people who are caring for the world. And that's where teachers, in my opinion, are at the highest level. People who are working in nonprofits are at the highest level because their dedication is to make it a better world, to get other people to make it a better world. And it's a, it can be, a, uh, I don't know, a snowball effect as a volunteer or as a worker. So one thing we're going to do at my birthday, I've decided this, I haven't told everybody yet, but there are going to be 18 of us together for a good part of the weekend. And I'm going to say, okay, I want to figure out what we as a family can do to make our contribution to fighting climate change meaningful. And we can hold each other accountable. What are we going to do? And then I'm going to ask, everybody to get into small groups i mean this is the way nonprofits work get you know groups of three or four people maybe four groups talk about it make sure there's a kid in each group because it's their world it's their world that really matters and come up with things what are we going to do are we going to be go vegetarian you know not vegan or you know no meat on monday tuesday wednesday are we going to not have any more plastic bags in our house? Are we not going, you know, what are we going to do as a family that we all agree we're going to do? Now that's not a nonprofit, but it's something small that we can do. And maybe one of the grandkids will say, hey, I'm going to take a video of this process, put it up there. And maybe that's going to be something that another thousand people or another million people will see and replicate. That's you know one of the other amazing things about social media today is an yeah, idea like that can sweep around the world. It can go viral and be very powerful. Yeah, yeah. And it's just us saying what we will do and hold each other accountable. My grandkids are really worried about you know what plastic is doing to our oceans and everything else. Oh, and right they're right. So they're right. They're absolutely right. right. And sure, corporations are doing something and government, some places are doing something. And where top government doesn't do something, sometimes state governments are doing it or city governments. You know, there is progress, but yeah, we need everybody to focus on how to make it a better world. And that is, go back to my <laughs> original issue, that is an opportunity for every single person to step up as a leader in their family, in their community and say, I want to do this. This is a need. I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get other people to help me do it. I'm going to communicate about it. And we're going to have an impact.
and we're going to feel good. We're going to make a difference. No, that's very powerful. That's a very powerful message. Yeah, it is. It is. So and one this is, thing. This is, this is, Go ahead. This is, David, this is what my book is all about. Is yeah, I well how we're... you can make it a better world and. <laughs> It, it absolutely is. But, and I didn't even know about the book. Everybody, for the record, I did not know about the book coming in. No, um, you didn't. Ken was uh, referred by a multiple guest, Jeremiah Craig, who you all will remember from uh, Data Analytics episode and his episode on cowboy boots, wearing cowboy boots. Um, I had no idea, but um, definitely we hit on a lot of your points from the book, so I'm glad that I feel, I feel, um, I don't know how, what, what, what am I feeling? I'm feeling kind of proud that I hit on these points and not even knowing it, not even uh -huh. having read the book, but I need, it just, it's confirmed that I need to read this book and I'm thinking about, um, you know, seeing how I can get, I don't work at a nonprofit, but there's a lot of points that are applicable to corporate America too, uh, that can oh, yeah. make that a better place. And, and David, you do work as a volunteer for nonprofit. I, I will again, absolutely very soon. As soon as I yeah. pick Good. one, um, I'm in Houston, Texas right now and there's a, there's a bunch. Um, I haven't decided if I want to get back into a children's charity or if I want to get into a cardiac or heart related charity because that's uh, a mm -hmm. personal, um, that's personal to me because I, I'm that, that, I, I'm impacted by that quite a bit. And then there's also like charities like Save the Sea Turtles because I'm on the Gulf of Mexico and they uh -huh. come and nest. And, you know, there's, there's a Houston Zoo does a huge, um, they, they do a lot of work there too. So uh, I just, I have to pick. And I, and I don't, I know that some people are like, well, just do all three. And, and again, I don't want to, I like to be settled. And when I commit to something, I commit to it. So I don't want to, I don't want to work half-assed, excuse my language, half-assed for all mm -hmm. three. I'd really work, you know, like when I'm involved, I want to be involved. Yeah, good, good. That's you know, the kind of people the world needs. Yeah, so I just need to um, get off my tuchus and pick one. And you don't have to find, necessarily find something that already exists. It could be something that you say, I'm going to do something about this. And that again follows those six steps. Um, I was sitting around just in our, 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 our part of Boston. It's a village in Boston called Rosendale. And I was you know, aware and, and concerned about the environment issues, climate change, and talked to a couple friends and oh, okay. So we started an organization called Greening Rosie, Greening Our Village. And the, the it was actually quite easy to get other people involved because who can say no to that at a community level? And what we did is we would go around, particularly at a farmer's market every Saturday for a couple months with a clipboard and the clipboard would have, that would be a, an issue, trees or gardens or um, clean water or energy or you know, eight different areas that we were working in. And we would ask people, you know, hey, do you like green trees? Do you like trees? Do you think they're good for the world? Do you have trees in front of your house? Do you have a green place in front of your apartment? No? 
Oh, do you think it's important? You know, people say, yes, it's important. Oh, well, could you work with us to try to make that different? Oh, yeah. What can I do? Well, here's, you know, join, join us. And, you know, develop a treat planning program. Develop promotion for solar energy. You know, work with companies that are doing good things like solar energy. And that was one thing, actually, I was very involved for one year. The mayor of Boston gave that organization the award as being the best, best environmental organization in the whole city in just one year. So actually, those I did follow those six steps. I didn't realize it <laughs> at the time. <laughs> you sure did. <clears throat> but um, it makes a difference. So, you know, find something or create something. That is a leadership function, is to create. It really is. Um, and I will say that maybe when I'm ready to retire, if I do that, but right now, again, I would feel, I would feel more comfortable joining an organization than starting one at this point, because okay. that does take a lot of effort and time. And if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Uh -huh. And, uh, but you know, you mentioned you mentioned kids, and I don't know if you're near any place that has a homeless population, but I, I just the words I was walking down in the streets in Washington D.C. a couple of years ago with a friend from Poland, and she said, "I don't understand why in America, the richest country in the world, you have people who are sleeping in the street. Why? I didn't have an answer." Anyway, when I think of kids who are homeless with their families, it's just, oh, it's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. And there are a lot of organizations who are probably looking for people like you to help them do what they want to do. Yeah, that is, um, that is true. And the company that I work for now is really involved in, with uh, homelessness in the San Francisco area because it's so pervasive up there uh, you know people that work in san francisco can't even afford to to live there <laughs> so i mean they're like they're they're the working homeless and then there's also the homeless the true homeless um but either both people they, everyone needs to be served so they you know our, yeah. our corporation spends a lot of a lot of time there um, yeah you help where i can um there to help support the main corporate mission and everything so but it's not that, that I feel like I'm helping, but it's not exactly the big, it's not fully filling the hole that's missing when I stopped being on the board of the right, right. volunteering. Um, so Ken, I like to ask this, um, did, did, how do I do today? Did we do, did we cover the topic? Well, that you, that you brought up and, and did, it was there, did I not hit on anything? Cause you know, coming in unprepared to these things, uh, I always like to make sure that before we end an episode that the guests really, truly got the experience that they were looking for. Yeah, I know. I'm excited by what we just did today. Um, we covered, I think, as much as could be done in, in just over an hour. I mean, it is a 10-hour project. And somebody says, well, what are, are you going to do an audio book? Oh, God, I got to find someone well-known to read it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, um, well, on that note, does it have to be somebody that's well known? I don't know. I, you know, 
I bet you could find somebody though. I bet you could with your experience, with your, your network, I bet you could find somebody more than willing to narrate your book. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing is that people are volunteering to help me get it translated. So a colleague in Romania has already started. I mean, I'm giving her a tiny, tiny honorarium, but she's going to get it. She's going to translate it. I'm talking to people in Mexico about translating it into Spanish. Um, working with a colleague in Ukraine to get it translated into Russian or Ukrainian. I mean, there's a need for this. There's a hunger for it. Mm-hmm. There really and is. There's, there's so many stories. I, I mean, one more story that, I mean, you, you talked about looking for something. Um, you almost use the word, what is your dream? What is yeah. the dream that you want to do? And that's where if an, an organization can tap into your dream, uh, they're going to fly and you're going to fly. But that reminds me of once I was in Timisoara in Romania, working with the Alzheimer's Society. And the, the director said to me, Ken, we've, we've been trying for years to get the mayor to, to help us and give us money for a building, but he always says no. So I said to her, well, okay, let's go see him. Can you get us to see him tomorrow? And take a different approach instead of asking him for money ask him literally what are your dreams for your city mr mayor and she did it the next day we walked in she and i and uh two of her colleagues and and sat down the mayor was there with his you know arms folded in a very i don't want to talk to you expression and his assistants were imitating him and then aurora said well mr mayor we're here actually today to ask you what your dreams are for your city what do you hope it will be for older people sometime in the future and literally he opened his arms from you know being folded opened his arms open and started talking about what his dreams were and his his colleagues on the city council or city administration you know saw him and said oh, okay it's a different, different game now they started talking and for an hour, there were questions and comments and plans and ideas and things going back and forth across the table. It was really exciting. At the end of the hour, the mayor said, um, you surprised me. I thought you were going to ask me for money again, but no, you didn't. You asked me what are my dreams. And I don't know. Let me think. Come back tomorrow morning. So we go back the next morning, Aurora and I. And the mayor hands her keys to a building. Says, here's your building. Because you asked me about my dream. And she was ecstatic and I was happy. And, you know, that was all about finding the donor's dream. Mm -hmm. And lesson number two, we walked over to where the building was. And I almost cried because it was in such disrepair truly falling apart, garbage, broken, everything. And what she did, she looked at it and she, she showed why she's a leader. She said, it's beautiful. <laughs> because she saw what it would be. What and literally, be, yeah. two, two, three years later, I went back and visited again. And it was because she had the vision of a leader and the mayor did too. And corporations gave equipment and unions gave laboring time and the 
city council, you know, everybody helped ha helped it happen because it was for them. It was a dream of everybody. And it's a beautiful facility and a really effective place for people with Alzheimer's and other, you know, elder conditions. So, you know, as a, to me, it's, as I tell you, a, a wonderful combination of good fundraising and extraordinary leadership. That's a great story. And I, and I appreciate your time today coming on uh, and sharing these stories with us in your book. I mean, I, I'm excited about the launch. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about your birthday. I'm invested in, in everything. <laughs> like you've, you've, you've won me over completely. Um, oh, great. Oh, great. So I'll really send you an email it. update on my birthday about what's happening. Yeah, I actually would very much like that. I, I love the concept that I love that concept that uh, you, you um, for your birthday. That's a great way to spend your birthday. You're, I, I am not doing something as awesome as you for your birthday because down here in Houston, we um, it's just uh, my wife and I and our daughter who just graduated. She works from home. Uh, while she's paying off her college debts, but she is doing quite awesome at that, by the way. Um, very yeah. proud of her for that. But uh, for my birthday, we're just going to New Orleans. <laughs> so we're not doing anything quite as quite as impactful as, as you are. <laughs> yeah, every little bit matters. It does. It really it's does. Not, it's not just presidents and governors and corporate executives who are going to save the world. It's all of us, all of us. Well, thanks so much for uh, being here with me today on what oh. may be, what could be the last episode of this podcast forever, or just could be the, the, the end of the season. It's definitely the end of the season two, everybody. Uh, David needs a little break. Uh, and I may or may not come back. So kind of uh, something that I need to think about. And the reason I'm doing that for you or benefit for everybody else's is that what can I like, obviously I like the topic because I started it and I, I, I like my format again, because it's all my idea. Of course I'm going to like my idea. What my dream, my dream, if you want to talk about dreams, my dream is somebody out there who's younger, um, I'm in my late 40s, who's younger than me will take up this podcast. I'm willing to give them the website and everything and teach them how to do this podcast and how to be mm. successful getting guests. Because my perceptions are of being on this earth for 40 plus years. And I've purposely delved into diverse lines of thinking, um, diverging and converging lines of thought. I, I don't like to just know an answer. I like to know all of the answers, possible answers to something. I, don't, I just, that's how I am, um, which is why I like the term perception is reality so much because I don't like to take anything at face value because I like to learn about it. And, and, and I'm being general, Ken, to make it, to, to make mm -hmm. a point. And it's, you know, I, I really, like I told you in the green room before, I like to really counteract confirmation bias and unconscious biases. So when I read an article that's slanted one particular way and it looks legitimate, I like to look for the counterpoint because I don't feel that I have enough information. So what I'm hoping is, that's a long way to say this, I'm hoping somebody younger than me will be interested and wants to take this up and be the new host and mm. put their mm. spin on it with their perceptions, what they've learned and their 
um, experiences because they're going to be different than mine. Um, one, they're going to have less because they're younger. Uh, or you know what? could be somebody older. I don't really care. Then they'll have more mm -hmm. experience than me. Mm -hmm. Either way, yep. I want somebody else to take up the mantle. Oh. And if that's not the case, then I'm just, I, I might, I, I have accomplished all of my goals with this podcast over the last two years or year and a half, year and a half. Mm. Mm. Everything that I set out to do, I've done. And with my personality, once I've done that, I like to move on to something else, which again goes into, I'm ready to volunteer again. And for me, I like to budget my time. And once I get involved, I like to be involved. So if I have this podcast, it's, it's, it does take a lot of time, but I'm ready to do something else. The other thought, Ken, is to do like, you know, you came on with video and I told you we really don't record in video because I don't, again, feeding into the unconscious biases, you know, I, I don't like to know as little information as possible. Like, I don't like to know age, race, sex sometimes is obvious based on names. Sometimes it's not, which is kind of fun. Um, I don't even know, like I've interviewed, I've had the privilege of interviewing people from many different countries. And I don't even know where they are. I hear their accent, but I never assume they're in that country because, you know, the world is a small place. People don't understand how small our planet is. Um, but anyway, I, that's my, so if I don't get another host to take over, what I'm thinking is moving it more into like a full video wow. interview format, throwing it on, you know, being a little bit more formal about it and throwing it on YouTube versus hosting it as like a podcast. So wow. it'll either evolve or it will carry on with somebody else. Um, or it will just be a culmination of uh, what I intend to do. I mean, I think the concept of perception is reality, or in my view, your perception becomes can become your reality are really cool thoughts. And I think you're it's an, a wonderful project. And I think as a a video video cast, it would be worldwide renowned i think it'd be great well it's definitely something that i plan to think about over this break originally i was planning to take a two month i'm going to take two months away so everybody tune in and in a couple months there will be updates uh -huh. on my facebook page or or the website which i definitely need to update the website i forgot to upload the last few episodes on there yeah. but you all know where to find me on anchor you know what the title of, of Ken's book is, How to Make a Better World, and it's a look for it in early April, uh, potentially April 7th at that, right? somewhere around there. You, but start looking on April 7th. You know, you, right. Is it even or available for pre-order? Uh, it will be, yes. So anybody who wants to, I would say next week mm -hmm. or right after this is broadcast, Look on facebook.com slash NGO futures and you'll find a way. Perfect. And I'll post a link when I post the episode. Uh, so we, you can definitely have that. And this episode will air on Ken's birthday. So when you're listening to this, <laughs> wish Ken a happy new year. Um, <laughs> I can, I have this weird thing where I know I'm in the minority here, but I don't wish people happy birthday. I wish them a happy new year. I feel that this is my own personal Davidism is that the year, the, the day we're born is the really when our year starts. 
and yeah. you are coming up on another year. You have made it through your 79th year and you are looking at your 80th year right uh, staring down the face. And that is the beginning of your personal year. So I want to truly wish you a happy new year. Thank you for that. And, and you could be very specific because I have five more books almost completely written already on planning and strategy and learning and governance. And the last one, which is a culmination of everything, is advocating for civil society and caring. And that is what could become a movement. Absolutely could. So we all know on March 5th, when this episode airs, we're going to go out <laughs> to Facebook. We're going to go out, follow that link, and then we're going to subscribe because we all have Amazon accounts. If you're, I know you do, except maybe those of you in different countries that don't. Um, but I'm sure that Ken will have another way for you to download his ebook if you don't have access to Amazon. But for those of you that do, subscribe to him as an author, and then anytime he posts or drops a new book on Amazon, you will be notified. I don't know if many people know that they can follow their favorite authors. I highly suggest uh, that you follow wow. our new friend, Ken Phillips, on Amazon or whatever medium that you get your eBooks from. Could be Barnes and Nobles, Nook, I don't know, whatever. Yes, it follow. would be. Follow, follow Ken as an author and you'll be notified. And it will be both a softback book and an eBook on Kindle. So widely available. And as you heard here at Exclusive, it's already being translated. <laughs> so let me throw this out there because I do have, um, I'm fortunate, I love my audience. They know I, 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 I suck up to them every time, really. Um, if there is a language that you are an expert in and um, perhaps uh, one of the Polynesian languages, if you want to convert that, I know you all speak English, but if you wanted to convert that into your native Polynesian language or in Africa, oh. all of you listeners in Africa, if there's a native language that you're an expert in, you can contact Ken. He's told you how to. And if you want to volunteer and translate that language for him, Whoa. feel free. Sure. And that will make a better world. Right? Will it not? So there, look what we did. We connected things. We're making things happen. <laughs> You're stepping up, David, again. <laughs> I saw the opportunity. Yeah. I stepped up. And you're running a good meeting right now. <laughs> I do what I can do. So, Ken, thank you so much for being here today. And, Jeremiah, I know you listen. Um, so thank you for the referral. And thanks for everything. Um, Everybody, you know how to reach me. Just because the podcast is on a break doesn't mean that I won't be checking email or the voicemail line, which is country code 1-585-210-0240 and email podcast at gmail.com. Across all social media, PIR podcast. Um, I have not really been keeping up with social media. Uh, I will be better about that, and I will be promise to update the website prior to uh, next week's uh, episode launch featuring Ken. But you're already listening to that, so you already know it. So it's really next week now. So to quote the movie Spaceballs, when will then be now? Now is now. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>